This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is off today. Happy Halloween to you. Are you giving out treats at the door tonight? Are you dressing up? Halloween is certainly all about the kids, but for Zoomers, it's also a time to reflect on what Halloween was like when we were kids. Numbers to call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-744-740. Let's start there with our Zoomer squad, David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and filling in for Peter Mugridge of Zoomer Magazine this week, John Wright, Executive Vice President at Maru Public Opinion. Welcome to you all. Hi, Jane. Hi, Hi, everybody. everybody. David, are you feeling the Halloween spirit today? Well, we are are feeling it vicariously. We ourselves are going to have a a quiet evening. We don't tend to get much... uh, traffic where we are, uh, but we'll be experiencing it vicariously through our six-year-old grandson and uh, checking in with him to see whether he accomplished the uh, <laughs> record-breaking haul of Kit Kat that he's looking for. Awesome. What What is his name and what is he dressing up his as? His name is Charlie and he's dressing up as Spider-Man. Oh, very good. Uh, we get a lot of kids in our Etobicoke neighborhood. Now, mind you, we haven't done Halloween since 2019. So this is our first sort of after the pandemic Halloween. Uh, Bill, what are you doing? Well, we've we've got a kind of different and interesting tradition. A few years ago, we discovered that one of our uh, elderly friends was a little bit concerned about being home on Halloween and was not able to give out candy. And, and so what we ended up doing was taking him out to dinner on Halloween and that uh, so that his house was dark and he uh, had somebody with him and wasn't worried. And that's continued until now. So we are going out for a nice sushi dinner tonight after we will, we have a lot of little children in our neighborhood. So in the first hour or so, we'll give out treats to the, to the little ones, the five-year-olds. But by the time the teens start coming around, we'll be sitting down to a nice dinner with our elderly friends. Oh, that's so nice. So you give out treats to the little ones and to an elderly one as well. Yeah. The, the, the little, the little neighbor, the little neighborhood <laughs> uh, ones where we have a, you, if you stay home in our neighborhood, you end up uh, having uh, 250 or 300 people at your door wow. on an evening. So, and they, they seem to bus in from other parts <laughs> of the city. So yeah. we, we're not contributing to, to that end of the scale. Yeah, we get that as well. What about you, John Wright? Well, we don't have anybody at home for the first time pretty much since um, all of them are away at university. And I have to say that uh, we kind of, we live on a street where most kids are told, go to the end of the street, turn around and come back. So we hardly get anybody that's ever come to our house. So what we're doing is going to the six-year-olds who's down the street. We're all getting dressed up. We have pizza and then we have uh, a walkabout to see everybody else in the neighborhood. So that's going to be kind of fun tonight. Oh, absolutely. I remember when my kids were young, I was living off the Danforth and the homes are so close together that if you went from the Danforth up to the next street and back down, you hit so many homes that the kids' bags were almost full at that point. And it was almost as much fun for the parents uh, socializing on the sidewalk as it was for the kids running up to the doors and getting their treats. You know what? It's just fun to be out for the evening to see all the houses that are decorated. We've got a rather large dog, so walking it every night has been a a whole thing to see a bunch of people with not only lights out, but sounds and sawed-off heads and limbs of bodies hanging from trees. It's not something you often (laughs) see uh, in the neighborhood, but it's it's kind of fun. Well, and let me ask you this before we move on to more serious issues. Um, How much are you spending for Halloween? There was a survey that came out last week saying that the average household was spending about $22 on candy to give out at the door. Uh, Bill, does that sound about right for you? Yeah, that sounds about right, although we go into the chips and uh, 
and peanuts rather than candy because I don't, I'm not a candy person, neither is Esther, and anything left over, we want to be able to eat ourselves. <laughs> That's right. Or sometimes I'll bring it into work the next morning so my uh, Zoomerplex colleagues can um, count, they can, they can get the calories rather than me. Right. <laughs> uh, David, what about you? It sounds like you have a quiet night there at home. Well, but... we, we're ready. We have some stuff. Yeah. Um, we don't have anything like the, um, decorations that are in this neighborhood, um, which are really quite extravagant in some cases. But uh, the the candy budget seems about right to me. And John, uh, do you know what you've spent? Well, you're going out. So I guess maybe you've spent on um, costumes or other things like that. Yeah, we're kind of mild uh, in terms of what we do, because as I said, we do live on a main street, but the kids don't come to our house, which is a shame because we've had lots of the stuff here. Yeah, my wife is going out with as some guy who's carrying a lot of top secret information in files in a box, and I'm wearing an FBI uniform. So there you go. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, so one of our callers wants to get on on this discussion as well. Uh, Martha in Midland, happy Halloween to you. Oh, happy Halloween to you too. So, are you um, celebrating baby, today? I'm sorry. Are you celebrating today? No. <laughs> no, I, I'm 82. We don't celebrate. I live in a, a modular home park, and we're all seniors, mm-hmm. so we don't get any kids. But when I was growing up, um, it wasn't like it is today. You went to the door, and you hollered, shell out. They would come to the door, and you'd have to go in and either sing a song, recite a poem, or do something before you could get candy. Wow. So you really had to work for your treats. Absolutely. It was just not anything for free. You had to earn it. <laughs> and it was, to me, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, you absolutely. Can't kids, you can't have kids going into somebody's home today. No, that's true. That would have been something that would have happened decades ago. But nice memories for you nonetheless, Martha. Oh, absolutely great. Have okay. a good day. You Happy too. Halloween. Thank you. All right, Zoomer Squad, uh, we got some promising news on Saturday from the University Health Network in Toronto of the first senior emergency care center paid for with an historic $52 million donation. The money is coming from the John and Myrna Daniels Foundation, who have provided the largest gift toward emergency medicine in Canadian history. This emergency care center for seniors is to be housed at Toronto Western Hospital and will feature a comprehensive research and education program, staff specialized in geriatric care, and a physical space designed to work around the unique needs of seniors. David, your reaction to this news? Well, I think it's got to be considered as good news um, because of two reasons. Number one, better treatment, and number two, by definition, a more efficient triaging or funneling, you know, of, of senior patients, senior people needing care, uh, who don't have to, who won't have to uh, wait as long in the, in the, you know, in the, as in the wider population. Uh, it begs some questions as to where it fits into the, to the health scheme overall, and uh, uh, is the province just going to gratefully accept it? Which obviously nobody's uh, getting in the way of it. But how does it fit in? Uh, could it be a model for more uh, centers? Uh, are they studying uh, the distribution of the seniors' population to, uh, with a view to looking this at this as a kind of a guinea pig for maybe more of them that they could produce? So I think it's all very encouraging. Bill, David brings up a lot of good questions that we still really don't have answers to, but on the surface, what are your thoughts? Well, I agree with David that it certainly is a positive news to, to think that this amount of money is going to go into uh, having something that we should have had uh, years ago with the growth of the senior population and the need for specialization. Hopefully this will bring attention and highlight that again. We don't, we don't have enough uh, geriatric specialists uh, in the province and maybe this will make more uh, young doctors anxious to go into uh, uh, geriatrics. Mm-hmm. It is interesting, and it will be interesting to see if the government uh, support is wonderful that individuals will put $50 million towards something like this. But where is the government supporting it? And as David rightly says, does, will this really translate 
into something that's going to happen right across the province and across the country. Right. And we'll talk about that as well after your initial reactions. Um, Should this money be coming from the private sector or should it be invested uh, by our government at Queen's Park or a combination of both? But first, John, what do you think about this? I think we are now starting to feel the direct impact of the growing and aging population. Nine years from now, I think I've said on this program, is going to be a real crunch time for the healthcare system and long-term care. This is a very encouraging sign, whether it's private or public sector or matched or comboed. It, it, to me, it establishes a bench, uh, a beachhead in Toronto and could become a model of care over the next number of years that we learn an awful lot from. So to echo everyone else, I hope that this is going to attract new doctors. Uh, it's going to attract, you know, new ideas about how to serve the growing and older population. Because when you put all of this technology and all of these mindsets in one place to feed off of a huge healthcare network, I think we can't do anything other than benefit from it, and I'm looking forward to it moving forward. So this money that's coming from the John and Myrna Daniels Foundation, David, does it also highlight what isn't coming from Queen's Park and uh, make us question why? Well, I think it's easy to to say that because it's just so here is a sum of money that didn't exist. It was zero, and now it's something because of the uh, the, the Daniels Foundation, uh, their, their generosity, and 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 uh, on this. So yes, but on the other hand, um, what are the other needs? What are the other facilities? Where are they going to get the money? Uh, is it just a matter of money? We had a, a couple of focus groups last week among CARP members on healthcare, and we. Um, all studied some new information. Canada, again, number two, number two from the top in spending on healthcare in the OECD, and right at the bottom in doctors per thousand population, hospital beds per thousand population, uh, MRI machines and diagnostic equipment per thousand. So it isn't just a question of the money. Uh, the money is being spent in large gobs and gobs compared to other countries. Where are the outcomes and where is the strategy? So this is certainly welcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I don't want to say yes, but I mean, you can just say yes and applaud and, and, and I think that's the appropriate reaction. But it doesn't change the fact that there are many hard questions we have to ask, uh, the governments of all provinces of, uh, where healthcare is going. And for the record, our audience, our CARP members were highly skeptical. Uh, that uh, governments can fix this mess. Bill, what are your thoughts in in terms of uh, this coming from a private foundation? It it does set up the possibility that it could be a template for other hospitals across the province, and ultimately that is a good thing, right? Well, yes, ultimately it is. But, you know, uh, uh, I'm old enough to remember... uh, Uh, Back in the days that I was in the health fundraising businesses, hospitals in many provinces were not even allowed to do fundraising. They might have had what they called in those days a ladies auxiliary who ran the gift shop and maybe an annual uh, fundraising event of some kind. Uh, But they they were not allowed. All their money had to come from government. And that seems to be, I mean, it's, it's the opposite direction. And now not only grants like this, uh, we're, we're seeing the, the lotteries that hospitals have to uh, have to run to keep things going. It, we really need to reexamine the whole funding base of healthcare in Canada, because that is uh, part of it. And uh, as David said, if we're spending more money than almost anybody else, but not getting uh, the results, then there's something really the wrong with, mm-hmm. wrong with the fact that government is still spending, not being effective, and foundations like this have to support uh, very needed, very needed work. And, and yet, John, it's uh, I, you know, I think it's welcome and perhaps necessary that people with this kind of money are able to help out the system, um, regardless of our, our social, um, our, our social healthcare system. Yes, you know, but <clears throat> I'm going to say, but um, if we rely on government entirely over the next 20 years, our system will break. I mean, we only have 1,900 long-term care 
facilities in this country and we've got 6 million people retiring in the next short while. I mean, you just got to do the math. So, I mean, we have governments today in the province of Ontario, as an example, putting away, you know, a couple of billion dollars in surplus uh, money. Um, it's got to look after a whole bunch of other things for the province and uh, for infrastructure and for those who are in need. I don't know where you get this money from, except that we have to look collectively. And at some point, it's not just government and not just people who are donating money back into the system, but we are going to have to start paying one way or the other uh, out of our pockets. I don't see another way forward on this because, you know, it's one thing to kind of wish we have health care. It's another thing to have it, and money makes the world go round. And I think we're going to end up with some real problems as the workforce shrinks and that tax base shrinks, and we have older people who have got equity tied up in their house and they've got money in the bank. So something's going to have to give in the next five to 10 years. Well, let me ask you this then as we wrap up this segment. Uh, we're talking about the first senior emergency care center paid for with a $52 million private donation. It will be at Toronto Western Hospital. It's all part of the University Health Network. Where do we go? I mean, if this is an example of where we can go with our aging population to better take care of our aging population. Uh, David, what are your thoughts in terms of other answers with uh, the acute care system and long-term care at the moment being at and above capacity? We need it, it, we have a management problem, not a, a money problem. We, we need a complete rethink of how health care gets delivered and by whom and in what way and what needs to be uh, centralized and what needs to be uh, decentralized. Again, I go back to our members that we talked to last week. We heard some very creative uh, things from them. They wondered out loud, for example, why are there 11 colleges of physicians and surgeons and why should every province be allowed to regulate the doctors and they can't move from one jurisdiction to the other? We could be leveraging telehealth to have more family practitioners practice on a national basis. Uh, you could be living in one province and your doctor could be in another province. There are creative solutions, and this is what our members came up with. Mm. There, they, there, there are creative solutions uh, to leverage technology, to leverage new systems, to streamline regulations, to stop getting in our own way. Um, there just needs to be the, the political will, and, and sadly that seems to be uh, completely and totally absent. It seems to be just let's tinker with the pieces the way we have them, move a little bit over here, move a little bit over there. But it needs a top-to-bottom rethink. And um, you have to ask yourself, do they have the horses? Do they, do, are the people running it now capable of coming up with that new thinking? Bill, uh, your final thoughts on this topic? Well, uh, you know, we're, we're happy, of course, pleased that we've, we've got this emergency care center. And one of the things that struck me about it was the fact that education, educating other doctors is going to be a, a part of it. And I'm, CARP is told as we look at the issues of there not being enough uh, doctors who understand uh, older Canadians and how and and their needs is that the reason is there aren't enough places for them to train and there are not enough uh, uh, senior physicians in the train in the in the training business. So maybe this part of it will step up that area and will have uh, actually produce more of the doctors who can go into all parts of the province mm-hmm. and serve the seniors the way they need to be served. And John Wright. Last thing I'd say is just that we need people to look after us. And, you know, we have this big bulge of the graying and older population going through the system. We have a shrinking demographic base in this country. We have to import an awful lot of immigration over the next number of years to keep up with it. Demographics is a very predictable science. Anybody can go to Stat Canada site. They can download all the demographic information. They will look out to 2041 and they will go, oh, my God. I mean, there's a, there's a crossing point where, in fact, 100% of our population, uh, 100% of our country growth is going to be based on immigration, and it's going to coincide at a time when we're needing all this healthcare expertise. So right. People matter. Yeah. 
It is our Zoomer squad, Jane for Libby. That's John Wright. Bill Van Gorder's with us, as is David Kravitz. One more topic here to tackle. According to a new poll, consumer confidence in Canada has hit a two-year low when it comes to job security, personal finances, real estate value, and the future strength of the economy. No surprise to those of you who are on a fixed income and trying to make ends meet with higher gas and grocery prices leading the charge. David, certainly older Canadians have been through this situation during their lives, but their personal situations may be very different now than in previous decades. Well, I think we have to focus on the, the um, people who are really struggling with poverty in the middle of this. Um, and I'm not trying to poo-poo everybody else's concerns because we all share that same anxiety about costs going up. But there, are, uh, just to give you the raw numbers, there's 7.2 million Canadians over the age of 65, which is the traditional quote-unquote retirement age. And mm-hmm. of those, about uh, 80% of them own a home. They already, they they already own a home. And of those, about 80% have no mortgage. But that leaves about just under a million of them who don't own a home and are paying rent. And out of that million, 40% have a household income of less than $50,000 a year. So you're renting, uh, your household income is low. You don't have a pension. So we have about a million seniors living in poverty and they don't have the resources to draw on, whether it's, you know, a home equity loan or a reverse mortgage or an investment portfolio or what have you, mm-hmm. they are absolutely at the limit. And that's a big number of people, in my opinion, uh, that we need to pay attention to. Thank you for breaking that down. Uh, Bill, would you like to piggyback on that thought? Yeah, well, there are a couple of things that struck me about uh, the the survey and, and uh, uh, the report. First of all, uh, the headline says... Uh, the lowest in two years. But if we you look back and and uh, forgive that two year, which was almost a, a blip on the chart that spikes down and spikes right up again, this is the worst we've been since 2009, right after the, the crash of 2008. So yes, it, it is uh, concerning. And it's what we're hearing from uh, uh, from older people, we uh, David and I were at the Zoomer show this weekend talking to a lot of our CARP members, and the number one issue continues to be uh, fi- finances, their own financial security, their own uh, finance. And it's, it's something, as we were discussing, a number of them said to us, you know, do, do, do government people, do politicians and bureaucrats really understand how we feel? And if you look at this, the Manos poll, the, the lowest uh, the lowest uh, uh, optimism of all the age groups was the 60-plus. It was lower than, than any other of the segments. So, yes, this is a huge issue uh, for, uh, for older citizens and uh, uh, something that uh, we've got to recognize and somebody's going to have to help do something about it. As a pollster yourself, John Wright, would you like to pick up on that? Yeah, well, the Nanos poll is pretty uh, consistent with everything that I'm seeing. I mean, I'm looking this morning at numbers that I've just opened up from the UK, and they're showing that 79% believe that their economy is on the wrong track compared to us at 69% and the Americans at 67%. You know, when you ask people whether they're worse off or better off or the same as they were last month, the numbers are pretty much consistent in almost every country. So it's a, it's a global phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I think the thing that's really going to have a huge impact on people, and it's it's roughly one in five in this country, and yes, it is older, but at the other end, it's under-income younger people, is the hockey stick quick rise of interest rates. I mean, inflation itself is a terrible thing because it eats away when you don't have an increase in your wages, but this rapid ramping up of interest rates to slow the economy down, that are good, it's going to hopefully to the economists, push people out of work and bring demand down is going to have such an impact on people who have variable mortgages and are trying to live with what they've got. So, uh, you know, I, I, I wish in a way we could have taken this rate, rate hike a lot slower than we have, but it's the decision that's been made overall and we can't have much more impact on it. We will have to leave it there for this week. I thank you all for your informed discussion. It was great. Thanks so much, Shane. 
Happy Halloween, everyone. Happy Halloween. Halloween. David Kravitz, Chief Membership Officer at CARP and Vice President here at Zoomer Media, Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and filling in for Peter Mugridge of Zoomer Magazine, John Wright, Executive Vice President at Maru Public Opinion, our Monday Zoomer Squad. Coming up next here on Fight Back, investing in bonds to help the people of Ukraine and how to solve the contract dispute for Ontario's 55,000 education workers. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host... Jane Brown. Libby is off for today. Thank you for joining us and me. There is a lot happening quickly when it comes to Ontario's 55,000 education workers. We first learned over the weekend from union representatives that the workers would be going out on strike this coming Friday, a day after they are in a legal position to walk out. Yesterday, a mediated session was called for negotiators with the government and CUPE, where union reps learned that the Ford PCs had upped their offer to 2.5% annual increases for employees who make less than 43000 a year and 1.5% for everyone else. But union president Laura Walton says the demand remains the same, 11.7% annual increases over a three-year contract. Then last night, I know there is a lot going on here. Education Minister Stephen Lecce announced he would be introducing legislation at one this afternoon, which he said will keep students in class. In other words, legislation that will prevent the workers from walking out and impose a settlement. Laura Walton says they will fight this legislation, but has not indicated how that will happen. Joining us to discuss is Jess Lyons, a lead organizer with the Ontario Parent Action Network. Network. She is also a nurse and a mom of three. And Sandra Ha is co-chair of York Communities for Public Education and also a parent to a young child in the system who will be impacted by an education workers' strike. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Jess, how do you see what's going on? So what I see and what all the parents I speak to see is that education workers are fighting for our kids and the schools they deserve. We all want our kids to be healthy, learning, and growing in class. But for that to happen, we need more education workers in every school building with decent pay. Sandra, um, what do you see? So I definitely agree with Jess. We're seeing, um, you know, education workers stretch to the limit. Um, we are newly diagnosed um, on the spectrum family, um, autism. And so we feel even more immense pressure because certainly I would rather have an ECE or an EA provided to my son so that he can be more comfortable in school, in the school setting and be integrated and included into his classroom. Um, this particular um, insistence that there is going to be um, you know, forced back to work legislation is uh, very worrisome to me because certainly we want a fair deal for all our education workers. And I think that a lot of parents feel the same way. We'd like you to call in if you're invested in this. Perhaps you have a, a child or a grandchild in the school system. And, you know, the education workers, this is an interesting part of it as well. Let me give the phone numbers out. 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Jess, we're dealing, when we call them 55,000 education workers, we're dealing with everybody from a custodian to an actual educator, uh, like Sandra was just uh, explaining, does it make sense to have broad strokes across all of these different professions within this union? I mean, absolutely. Uh, I'm a parent, but I'm also a worker, and I feel strongly that um, workers should have the right to collectively bargain, and every worker deserves decent wages. Everyone has to live, and no one should have to come to work worrying about needing a second or a third job. 
So even though the skill set is much more sophisticated for a person who is working with a child with autism than somebody who's a custodian, you feel that they should be collectively earning the same money. What I see uh, and what I think is most important is that education workers collectively are fighting for more services for students. And for healthy, clean, safe buildings. Okay. We, need, we need clean and safe buildings. We need a backlog uh, repair solved. And Ford and Lecce have created a crisis here by refusing to bargain. So they need to get to the bargaining table and offer a fair contract. So your organization, um, Jess, uh, the Ontario Parent Action Network, and Sandra, yours is the York Communities for Public Education. Your two groups, along with a couple of others, have recently co-authored a letter to Premier Doug Ford and Education Minister Stephen Lecce to back the bargaining demands of education workers. Could you go into a little bit more detail on that, Sandra? So, I mean, certainly, I think all parents across Ontario, they want their kids to be in safe, clean environments with the proper supports in place. And I think, you know, um, myself and Jeff, our, our um, perspective uh, communities, we, we definitely want to see a fair deal for these education workers. Um, we absolutely should be providing, um, you know, sustainable um, incomes for education workers. I mean, like, I'll, I want to bring up the fact that Stephen Lecce, you know, brought in this catch-up money of $200 per family. And for for special education kids, it's $250 per student. Now, why wouldn't that money be, you know, better suited to going back into the system and providing, you know, uh, proper supports for all our kids. You know, I mean, when we talk about education workers and the fact that, you know, QP falls under a large, uh, you know, sort of like umbrella of people that work in schools. But I mean, let's be honest, like I would rather my, you know, custodian at our school be happy and be able to provide support for my child. Like it's not reasonable to ask that they get paid fairly for the jobs that they do. It it isn't easy working in a school environment. So let me ask you this before we go to the phone lines, and they are jammed, by the way, uh, here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. Jess, what is, a what is I guess, because we're negotiating a settlement, both sides are negotiating a settlement, what is a reasonable wage increase on an hourly basis? So far, we have 2.5 versus 11.7. Is there a meet in the middle situation or is 11.7 where the union deems the wages to be at this time? Well, what I'd really like to emphasize is that uh, close to 3,000 parents have sent letters to the government supporting the uh, bargaining demands of education workers, and they have said that if uh, workers are forced to strike and take labor action to settle a fair contract, we will continue to support them. And some of those um, bargaining demands include a designated early childhood educator in every classroom, more educational assistance, more child and youth workers to better meet student needs, keeping school libraries open for students, um, guaranteeing healthier cleaning standards. So I just wanted to highlight, like, these are not unreasonable demands. These are absolutely reasonable demands. We want to see uh, education workers receive an increase to keep wages above the poverty line, especially under current inflation pressures. Okay, so it's not just about the hourly increase. It's about creating classroom situations where you have enough of these education workers. Absolutely. Okay, let's go to the phones and then I'll get final comments from you before we take a break. Ron in Guelph, what would you like to say about this situation? Um, Well, um, I'm part of the system more or less because I drive a school bus, so I'm in contact with the um, teachers and with the education workers and I can agree that the um, the, um, the education workers, I guess, in the classroom, definitely, I believe they deserve a raise. Um, do they deserve 11.7? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think more in the line of a 3.5% raise is, is reasonable. 
The problem is with giving them the 11.7, it sets a dangerous precedent because then the teachers' unions are going to say, whoa, there it is. There's 11.7. That's our goal line, and it'll be the civil servants. Everybody's going to go and say, hey, the uh, workers all got 11.7. We're going to go for the same thing. Okay, Ron, I appreciate your call and your perspective. Let's go to Susan in Listowel. Susan, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to say that I worked as an educational assistant. Oh, I think we lost Susan. Let's go to Jody in Toronto. Jody, go ahead. Uh, I think the education system needs the whole overhaul. Uh, first of all, I think it should be an essential service. It has a terrible impact on our children, both emotionally and development. Every time we go through this, every couple of years or whatever. Also, I think the whole thing has to be revamped where the jobs are like 9 to 5, like they teach from 9 to 3.30, and then they have an hour and a half to do their uh, grading papers, whatever it is they do, and so on and so forth. And the jobs should be graded depending on the service that uh, the individual provides. For example, if it's just a teacher or if it's someone that's dealing with uh, children with uh, special needs, Mm -hmm. They all need to be graded differently. Okay. Thank you. Let's go to Ellen in Toronto. Ellen, you're up next on Zoomer Radio. Go ahead. Oh, hi there, Jane. Um, Just a quick uh, comment. Um, The person that said a lot of the parents feel this way is completely um, incorrect. Parents are tired of this. The kids have suffered. This is not fighting for the kids. Uh, I've worked in the private sector for years and years. And you get what you get, and you don't get upset. And if you want more money, go and get a different job. Um, I'm glad that Lecce is standing up to them, and I'm 100% behind him. And in terms of them not, I mean, barely getting raises some years, 0% increases some years, yeah, 1%. Yeah, welcome to the world. Well, Many years I went without raises. Yeah, but that doesn't make... if you make, wanted a raise and you didn't get it, you could go and find a different job. So what is the, the... idea, you know, the hours 9 to 3, most people are working 9 to 5 in that. So, you know, the idea of getting paid longer... Um, that makes no sense. Okay, me. it's black and white to Ellen. Thank you for calling, Ellen. Uh, let's go back to our guests here uh, just to wrap up the segment. Um, Jess Lyons, what is the ultimate solution here? Because neither side is going to get its way, uh, especially uh, in, a, in the, a tense environment like this. Well, I just wanted to um, comment on a few of the, the comments that we are getting in. One, one just to say that uh, in my view, and with the parents that I speak to, it's actually an upside. We need education workers to set a high bar and to make gains because it does mean that subsequent workers who are bargaining collectively have, have that as a reference point, and we actually all need raises. There is an over $2 billion surplus in Ontario right now. There are more, more surpluses projected year over year. There is absolutely no reason why workers can't have a living wage, and the truth is, is as this uh, last speaker pointed out, they workers will end up having to go get a different job. And actually, that's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. We need workers in schools. And if healthcare is any illustration, which it is, the staffing crisis is due to terrible working conditions and lack of compensation. Sandra, we your final comments. Schools in there. Thank you. Sandra, go ahead. Your final comments. I definitely agree with uh, Jess's comments. Um, and certainly, you know, in terms of there are a lot of people who are saying, well, you know, teachers only deserve X, Y, and Z, or education workers are getting what they can get and you don't get upset. I mean, frankly, you know, this is, it's not okay when you you aren't making a living wage and you're working more than your, your primary job to make ends meet. And to be fair, in the private sector, you, you can just, pick up and go and leave. And I think it's really important to understand that I, as a parent, certainly um, want my teachers to be appreciated for the work that they do because they are dealing with the most important person in my life, which is my child. Wouldn't I want them to feel like they are being respected? And that's what I think most parents are asking, maybe not um, Aileen, um, but uh, you know, most parents are saying, hey, Stephen Lecce, come on, let's just do a proper bargaining. Why are you forcing people back to work? You know, he could come to a, a good 
good faith, you know, uh, way to bargain, but he's not doing that. He's putting his stamping his foot down. And frankly, I'm tired of that too. I'm tired of the free, like the bargaining sort of like parents and giving $200, $200 is not going to help my autistic son in therapy, in a private therapy. I'm not even in the autism program yet. And that, I mean, I could have a whole show on that, right. but that in itself isn't that. Okay, well, thank you both uh, for your vested comments on what's going on. We'll hope for the best this week. And uh, this won't be the last time we talk about this topic. Thank you both. Thank you. Jess Lyons, lead organizer with the Ontario Parent Action Network, and Sandra Ha, co-chair of York Communities for Public Education. Still to come on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back, Jane for Libby, investing in Ukraine by buying a specially designed bond. We will talk about that next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. With Vladimir Putin's Russian war in Ukraine now into a ninth month, the government of Canada is offering another way for Canadians to assist. At the Congress of Ukrainian Canadians in Winnipeg this past weekend, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced that the government will be issuing Ukraine sovereignty bonds. According to the Office of the Prime Minister, the equivalent proceeds from this five-year bond will be channeled directly to Ukraine through the International Monetary Fund's administered account. These bonds are said to build on the government of Canada's $2 billion in financial assistance to Ukraine this year. Joining us to discuss this development, Peter Sturin, President of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress Toronto Branch, and Alan Small, Senior Investment Advisor at Alan Small Financial Group. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello, Hello Jane. Great to be here. It's always nice to have you, Peter, and you too as well, Alan. Uh, explain to us how these bonds will work. How can Canadians invest in them? How much can they invest? Uh, how much will they get back? And how much goes to Ukraine? Uh, is that for me? Or? Oh, for Alan. Yeah. Yes, for Alan. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, uh, so I think right now, good questions. I don't think the whole program is fully announced as yet. I think the denominations uh, are still to be worked out. Obviously, the, the interest rate uh, hasn't been announced as yet as well, but I believe it's, you know, to give opportunity for those that want to continue to help uh, Ukrainians, uh, you know, and all that they're going through during the current uh, current war. Uh, it's an opportunity for Canadians to, to help, further help and provide, I guess, money, assistance to help things like uh, to keep their pension funds flowing, to keep their energy uh, turned on basically to help the country survive during these very difficult times. And as you mentioned, the money uh, will flow through the IMF. Uh, it's backed. It looks like it's going to be backed by the uh, government of Canada. So it should have a, obviously a, uh, uh, a AAA rating uh, on these bonds. And um, you know, it depends on who you are. If you just want to help, it's a good idea to buy. And perhaps if the interest rate is, is competitive enough, it could garner some attention from some of the investors uh, on, on Bay Street wanting to, to get a good interest rate. So, Alan, say uh, just in terms of your experience with other bonds like this, like even investing in the government of Canada, how does that work? Say you want to put $200 into a bond, there will be a lifetime for this bond that you will be paid a certain amount of interest, and that money will then be, how does that work? The government of Canada matches the money and they send it to Ukraine? So it looks like so. So it looks like a five-year bond, from what I've read so far. I don't know if there's going to be a shorter-term bond there, but from what I read, it looks like a five-year bond. Uh, you put the money in, you'll earn interest uh, on an annual basis, and uh, after the five years is up, I'm going to uh, you'll get your money back that you've put in, and it looks like that that money will flow through the IMF and through the IMF to Ukraine. And uh, as I said, I think. When Canada um, has announced that they will be backing this bond, or it's a, a obviously then a AAA rated bond, it is something that you know it, it's pretty much guaranteed mm-hmm. that you will get your money back and interest earned over that period of time. So again, I think it's going to depend a lot on for those that want to help. It's a great way to help. You know, if you can uh, put in a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars, 
you will earn interest on that money over time and be able to help with obviously for a good cause. And for those that you know want to put more money in as more of an investment, perhaps hold that in some sort of portfolio as an investment if the interest rates are are good. Uh, I think that is a possibility as well. Peter Storn, an innovative uh, idea at this point in the war? Uh, absolutely. It's actually the first time uh, the Canadian government has done this uh, for another country. And uh, we uh, we are very hopeful that other countries will, uh, will take the example. It's a very simple way for the government to actually not to put out the capital. Yes, they will be putting out their guarantee on these bonds. They're uh, the latest uh, press release I see, it's basically going to be called um, uh, Government of Canada's uh, Ukraine Sovereignty Bond, right. um, carrying the full guarantee. And meanwhile, they don't have to put out the capital. So you'll have hopefully uh, many Canadians of all uh, different backgrounds uh, wanting to support. And uh, our understanding, the interest rate will be competitive. Um, and it's just a very um, an excellent tool right now to, hit, to help a country that continues to be battered today. Again, 50, 50 missiles, um, uh, cruise missiles fired at Ukraine, strictly targeting infrastructure and civilian targets. Uh, we hear that uh, KU has been hit again, yeah. and they are currently without power, a city of over 2 million people. So Ukraine desperately needs any support they can get. How surprised, how pleasantly surprised were you to hear this information from the prime minister at your at your meeting in Winnipeg? We were all very surprised. Um, obviously, it's been in the works uh, for a bit, and uh, but we we uh, not many of us were aware of it at that point because it was being worked out in the background. And even then, when the announcement was made on this weekend, all the details were there. We had a lot of questions when they said, "Just give us a few more days, and more de- details will follow." So. Surprised, but uh, extremely happy. Uh, Alan Small, investing in a Ukraine sovereignty bond, uh, other than making you feel good, uh, is is it a a good investment uh, for an individual? Would a solid investment, a good idea to round out a portfolio? Well, I think it can be, and and, and the fact uh, the fact that the Canada is backing these bonds, which gives it a high credit rating, right? A, a high rating. It become makes it be, uh, become very enticing for those if, uh, as the other guests mentioned, if the interest rate is competitive, um, then all of a sudden it becomes a viable option for those that are trying to uh, invest today. You know, if you're looking at uh, a rate uh, on an annual basis of you know four and a half five percent, if you can get it somewhere in that range four to five percent, I think uh, that could be an opportunity for. Uh, for many people to to look at these types of bonds again i think it's going to depend on uh, you know what they're able to buy them the denominations and uh, as i said i have seen a 5 year uh, number so a 5 year uh, bond don't know if they're going to have anything shorter term perhaps uh maybe the government is saying you know 5 years out gives them enough time to do what they need to do uh and and as your guest says it's a way for the government to to continue to raise money for ukraine without them having to you know, to 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 put up uh, their their own money up front. So uh, I think it can be a, a good investment idea for those that are looking for one, for those that are looking for some lower risk in their portfolio and get a, a pretty good interest rate. Yeah, there's not much these days, Alan. Uh, I mean, the the markets have been recovering a little bit over the last couple of weeks, but there's not much in the way of a sure thing. Uh, whereas this actually is a sure thing. Well, yeah. So that's why when you talk about a competitive rate, you would compare these types of bonds with other. Uh, fixed income products that are, are have a similar rating, AA rated, AAA rated type of paper that uh, people could invest in. And if the, the rate on these bonds is competitive with the rates of those bonds, then uh, you can, uh, you know, an investor can definitely want to include it in their mix. Uh, Peter, what what were you told in Winnipeg at the meeting on the weekend in terms of how Canadians can invest in these bonds? Uh, we're waiting for more details, but obviously you could speak with your financial advisor about this. Uh, of course, and um, it will work uh, pretty much the way the old Canada savings bonds used to work from our understanding. Um, Canada uh, you know, discontinued that program, but so it'll readily be available at pretty much all financial institutions, banks and credit unions will be able to 
uh, to issue them on behalf of uh, the Canadian government. So again, a bit of administration work that's going to have to be done, but uh, that's the intent. And we heard that the denominations might be, and might be as low as $100. So uh, a fantastic tool for, for many people and a great way to save. So uh, what better what better way to save money than actually helping out helping out people in need? Right. And and along those lines, Alan, with the Canada Savings Bonds, they used to be a great gift for a grandparent to give a grandchild. Uh, likewise, uh, for this idea. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what better way, a great conversation to have. You know, we're all, we all love to teach our, you know, kids and, and, and trying to help others. Uh, you know, as we all we said back in my kids' school, you know, bigger, bigger, uh, big kids help uh, themselves, but bigger kids help others. So a great way to teach, the, the, you know, kids, younger generation to to uh, to help Ukraine and, and, and understand what's going on over there. And, um, you know, for the kids and the younger generation to to really get behind what's going on in this whole push to to try and do what we can to to help the Ukrainian people. We're just about out of time, but uh, Peter, I do want to hear about uh, resolutions, what you all discussed at uh, the Congress meeting in Winnipeg. How did it go? It was fabulous. So we had over 300 delegates, almost a record number, but the amazing part is the first time in our history that we had delegates from every single province, including the Yukon. So Many new immigrants, many new arrivals have joined, are getting energized and, and working to do everything they can, primarily to help Ukraine and end this war in any way, shape or form, through lobbying the government, working at different levels of government, uh, to finding support uh, through aid agencies and such. So it really is a community that is united as never before. And we're just so thankful for the Canadian people and the Canadian government that continues to, to show support where it's really needed. Great news. Well, congratulations, Peter. And uh, thank you to both you and Alan for joining us here today on Fight Back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Peter Storen is president of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress Toronto branch, and Alan Small is senior investment advisor at Alan Small Financial Group. It is Jane for Libby, and make sure you join us tomorrow on Fight Back when our recovering politicians start the show after the noon news. Have a great day. The number one's at one. Coming up next after Steve Key's news. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.